Hi, everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Today, Masterclass founder and CEO David Rogier sits with Lion Tree and Kindred Media founder and CEO Arie Borkoff. Quote, education's the only thing that someone can't take away from you, his grandmother once told him. And David's taken that lesson to heart. Hosting one-of-a-kind courses from the biggest names in their field, everyone from Bob Iger to Serena Williams, and a new course from Hillary Clinton, Masterclass aims to create an inspiring and impactful curriculum unlike any other. Tune in for this insightful conversation. Hi, everyone. I'm Arya Borkoff, CEO of Lion Tree. And today I'm thrilled to be chatting with David Rogier, the founder and CEO of Masterclass, to really conduct his own masterclass, which is uh, really bringing the guy behind the scenes in front of the camera and in front of the audio. Masterclass, as many of you know, is the subscription e-learning platform, which has grown from just three courses at inception in 2015 to offer more than 150 courses from instructors like James Cameron, Shonda Rhimes, Gordon Ramsay, Serena Williams, Bob Iger, and many more coming up in platforms like the White House that you're going to be hearing about shortly. But there's a real purpose and drive behind David's mission. And for those that know him, already know that about him. But you will all learn about that in the moments to come and what has led him here today. So I'm excited to learn more from David today. So David, welcome to KindredCast and Lion Tree's own podcast video platform to share our stories of insights and deal-making and a business school mindset of where we're to come and where we're coming from, where we're going and to get together here and talk about our stories. Thank you for being here. Of course, I am excited to be here. So first of all, like we had dinner together a few weeks ago, really talking about life during the pandemic and where we are and talking about masterclass and things that we're not going to talk about, like strategic priorities and capital and everything else. But then it quickly got into a nice dinner and someone at the dinner that's a dear friend of ours and an investor of yours start talking about this podcast. I was grateful enough to be overhearing it. And I looked at you and you paused and I said, do you want to join me for the podcast? And you said, I'd love to. And I was so honored and that I would get to bring up the person that I so admire what you've done with Masterclass because mm. it is such an incredible platform of not just storytelling, but real learning and lessons so well done. And that's how it's been able to become really an education tool that is so in motion and useful and archival that you can keep going back to that I'm so honored to be able to do this with you here today. So I appreciate oh, your... Oh, uh, thank, thank you, Arie. That inside. is very sweet. The uh, chance to talk to you and debate and argue and discuss, how was I going to say no to that? <laughs> going back to your beginnings, and I think that we talked about in your childhood and my childhood, where you first knew that you had an urge to learn. It also wasn't your first taste of entrepreneurship. Quite impressively, you created a web search engine as a teenager, which you sold. And then like- For a very it, small amount of money. I think like under 600 bucks. But at the time, that was amazing. Yeah, I'm not saying that was the funding vehicle for Masterclass or anything like that. But maybe you had a lunch money or something like that. Still jumping in the pool and getting outside of the normal coursework. 
But when you attended Stanford, you did launch Masterclass. And what was it about creating new companies that got you really the energy moving and the fire burning since an early age? It's a really good question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before. I think it's probably a few factors. One, I've never done well with authority figures. I always ask a lot of questions and that is not encouraged in our education system. In fact, it is usually discouraged. So I think there was some part of entrepreneurship, which was, I can be my own boss and I can push and drive it. But actually what you learn is it's not that. It's actually, you can drive it, but the customer is your boss, your board is your boss. So you actually have bosses, but unlike almost anything else in the world, you are responsible for your own success. And that is addicting. So that is one part. I think the other part of entrepreneurship excited me early age was the act of creation actually is a high for me. It is exciting to me. That can mean a piece of art, but it can mean an organization, a product, a thing. There's something about that that I really love. And in entrepreneurship, you do that every single day. The third part is I've had jobs where I've worked with assholes before. And as an entrepreneur, you get to decide who it is that you work with. And to be able to work with people that you like to work with, once you have that, you never want to give that up. Yeah, right. But you did say you ultimately find you can isolate the fact that things are in your control of decision-making, but you ultimately do have people that you report to somewhere. But you think that some of that influence, maybe in the subconscious, was a part of your background because your grandparents, your grandmother and your great-grandmother emigrated to the United States from Poland to avoid persecution. And so they did not have a choice. They had to flee from the Nazis. And then when they got here, your grandmother was rejected, I believe, from numerous medical schools and finally accepted into the New York Medical College and became a pediatrician. Did that experience of seeing rejection and persecution and having to flee and not in their control, say, I'm not going to be conforming to anyone's standards. I'm going to then put it on my own behalf because I was afforded that opportunity and independence. Oh, is that oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you want to go to like, you know, really the psychologist work, what underpins those, the, all those three things I said, it was how I was raised. So I was raised in part by my grandparents and my grandmother. So my grandparents on my dad's side met in Auschwitz of all places to find love. My grandmother, my mom's side escaped. There's this one day I will never forget. I was in second grade. It was after school and I went to her house to stay with her. And I was complaining about all the math homework I had. And obviously I did have a lot because I'm second grade. And my grandma, she goes, hey, David, I have a story I want to tell you. And as a second grader, that's like the last thing that you want to hear. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, okay, what is it, grandma? And she tells me this story. So when my grandma was living as a teenager in Poland, her and her mom went on a family vacation. And while they're on vacation, the Nazis attacked and invaded Poland. Her dad was, was stayed home a couple extra days to finish work. They never heard from him again. She makes it all the way out to New York City. The only job her and her mom can get is on a factory floor and they're working side by side. And my grandmother decides that she wants to become a doctor. She applies to every medical school in the state of New York, over 25 schools, and she gets a no from every single one of them. She keeps working in the factory, applies again next year to all 25. She gets a no from every single one of them. She starts calling the deans of admissions and asking, why am I not getting in? They all hang up on her, except for this one guy. 
And he says, I'll be honest with you. You have three strikes against you. You're a woman, you are an immigrant, and you're Jewish. Hangs up the phone. She keeps working in the factory, applies again the next year, gets into one school, becomes a doctor. And I'm staring at her because this is intense things to be hearing from just having complained about math homework. And my grandma looks at me and she goes, David, the point I'm trying to make to you is education is the only thing that someone can't take away from you. And that rocked me to my core. Yeah. Well, and this was all happening in front of you when you were living there together. Yeah. And I think it made it entrepreneurship as a way to take control of your life and not be as dependent on authority and this fear of authority or this distrust stems from there. But also this idea that if I can help build something other people can't take away from others, if I can make it possible for anybody to learn from the best, I'm helping them have something that nobody can take away from them. So even though you were struggling in school, you really embrace learning, which is a bit paradoxical. That's a hard contradiction to embrace because a lot of people that struggle in school depart from learning altogether and say, I'm going to be a rebel, I'm going to join a band, I'm going to do all kinds of creative pursuits which are not bad, nothing wrong with that. But you still really loved learning, even though the school system didn't satisfy that. Yeah, I think one of the worst parts of a school system is that it takes the joy out of learning. And so then we create this myth, especially in America, that once your school stops, all your education stops. That's crazy. It used to be for maybe for my grandparents that what you learned in school would last you for your entire life. But that is no longer the case. The rate of change has increased so much, has increased even more that you have to learn for the rest of your life. And I think where the ed tech world has gone in wrong, it said, hey, we're going to, you know, because the question that naturally you ask then is, how do you design a school for the rest of your life. And where EdTech goes is an EdTech says, hey, we're going to make it seem like exactly like the school that you were for the first 18 years of your life. We're going to put a webcam in the back of a classroom. You're going to have tests and homework assignments. They are forgetting one key thing. For the first 18 years of your life, you are required by law to have your butt in that seat in the classroom. After that, you have choice. So if you're going to design a school for the rest of your life, it has to bring the joy back to it. It has to be something that you want to engage in. And I think that's the opportunity that we saw where I think most of EdTech missed. Yeah, and I think a lot of children, including my children, say, I'm really struggling to figure out what's pragmatic about what I'm learning in school and how the applicability of this will relate to any real-life experiences. And part of that, parents say, well, wait till you see later in life. You don't know how to connect the dots till later. But they're on to something. You don't really want to fight the kids. It's like, don't fight the market. Don't fight the tape. Don't fight the kids. The kids know what they're talking about. And amazingly, in a world of technology that they're growing up with, that maybe I didn't grow up with in the same way, at the the tips of your fingers, you have it on your phone or your iPad or whatever it is, the world of access that world leaders only had access to growing up, you just need structure around it. And so that e-learning is equivalent, if you have the structure around it, to complete education systems in a very pragmatic way. 100% agree. I mean, I think our education system is still designed that information is the hard thing to get. So if you think about school, I don't know if anybody, as you listen, maybe you all think about this. How many of us remember taking notes in class, the entire class, you're just taking notes of exactly what the teacher just said. It's like, I'm going to transfer facts from my head to you. When the internet has changed that, 
the information is the easy part to find now. But I think the role of education that has to be is I'm going to help you learn how to filter those facts, how to figure out how to connect the dots between things, how to synthesize them in trends, and how to find inspiration to get inspired to then go want to learn more. Right. So there's a quote that you said, my ultimate dream is that somebody who never have access to these masters takes one of the classes and becomes a master. That's your thematic. That's your motto. Yes. So what does that mean? One of the most cruel things, I think, in the world is to limit somebody because of who they are, where they are born. I stutter, and it was much worse as a kid. School would limit me besides being teased, which was hard. The hardest part was school teachers wouldn't call on me because they were either embarrassed when I spoke and talked and words came out, it wasn't going to be clear, or they were embarrassed for me and did not want me to stutter. They would never ask me to speak in front of a classroom or to act or present. And I love those things. To limit somebody based on income, on education, on any of those things to learn stunts growth and life and happiness. If I can make it possible for anybody to learn from the best, for anybody to have a chance to learn from people that they would have never had access to, that unlocks their own potential and helps make it more fair and even that they then will become somebody great. My hope is somebody who had never had a chance to learn from Martin Scorsese or Shonda Rhimes or Bob Iger, all of a sudden now can learn from them. And then they become inspired to do those things in their own life and then come back and teach on masterclass. I almost don't need to bring this out to the surface, but the beautiful irony of masterclass, of giving voice to the masters for the benefit of those that don't get access to these talents, the democratization of these masters for someone that has not had its voice or that stutters is such a beautiful paradox. Also, possibly the reason why I'm so grateful to be giving you this voice on this Kindred cast that I've wanted to bring your voice out here a little more. It's such an amazing narrative arc that I want to bring you out from the wizard behind the curtains of this brainchild of this entrepreneur. And I think telling your own story is so important, even before we get to the business plan of how it all came to be, which I think is how entrepreneurship really is founded on something that's so personal that is not just capitalism. It's meant for unlocking a model with purpose for the benefit of digital economy, which is all really about getting access to things that people wouldn't have access to that are rightfully theirs. Yeah. And then how do you use the platform that you create to even further that mission? Okay, so we have the best in the world on the platform. How do you say, okay, hey, there are some people the best in the world that you probably don't know of, but that you should know of. And if I have a site that has Christina Aguilera on there and Samuel Jackson, I can bring on Chris Voss, who's the FBI hostage negotiator, who you've never heard of probably before as a master class. But the fact he's on the site with a Christina Aguilera and a Samuel Jackson, like, okay, look, I don't know this guy, but he's probably quite good if he's on with them. You then take their class. And it's fantastic trying to give people a voice who you would not know of or listen to before. I do know of him because when I saw the title of the masterclass on negotiation, I was obviously intrigued given my day job is negotiating deals. And I was thinking, I wonder if I had to go up against this negotiator if I had a shot because obviously negotiating deals for a living probably doesn't hold a candle to negotiating hostages 
negotiations at all. You know what? But that would be a great next class. Chris Voss versus REA. <laughs> I'm not getting thrown into that ring. <laughs> <laughs> Life or death is not the same thing as deal points, but some people think that way, obviously. Okay, let's go now forward to uh, 2015 and launching Masterclass. You start with three classes, Serena Williams, Dustin Hoffman, and James Patterson. But by the end of 2021, which is now, you will have hosted more than 150 courses, 2,500 plus lessons, and 520 hours of content. And it's important to point out, Masterclass owns the IP of this content. So tell us how you're able to scale so quickly while keeping the same standards of quality that you had at the launch. Yeah, if the quality dropped, we wouldn't exist. And we knew from a very early stage, and we actually wrote down early on, and we constantly changed this list, what are things that have to be true for us to achieve our goals? And one of them was we had to have the best in the world teach. Two was the content had to be great. Because if the content wasn't great, the best in the world weren't going to come teach. But second, people weren't going to stay around. People weren't going to take a class and actually retain for next year and the year after. So it was always really important to us. So you know, it's easy to lose sight of those things. But if you lose sight of the product, you are on a slow downward trend. So how we did that operationally was a few things. One is making sure from an incentive perspective, a structure perspective, a goal perspective, that the quality of the classes was always a top metric for us. What we learned was the top metric that we should use wasn't MPS score on a scale of one to five. What we found it really was, was figuring out how much impact are we having on your life? I don't know another company that uses that stat or not. We found it highly predicts what your retention rate is, but also it helps us guide how we make our classes because all of a sudden then it's not about making something that's just entertaining or something that's so boring that you can't finish it. It's like, how much impact did this have in your class, on your life? And then we can start to plot this and look, which are the classes that have high impact? Which parts of the classes drive high impact? Okay, what's happening in that that has high impact? And then that started informing us about our philosophy of learning and saying, hey, you're going to learn a lot more if the person tells a compelling story and say, okay, once you say it's kind of obvious, but we can track in our classes, that is where you feel that you actually learn something. So we try to maximize all the big lessons into amazing stories is one example. Yeah. Yeah. But how do you get these great names? Talk about the quality of instructors. I mean, I mentioned some already like Serena, Yeah. but you also feature classes with people like Bob Iger who happened to be visiting just a couple hours ago here. Tom Morello, and so many more. Anna Wintour. Yeah, Anna Wintour. You get incredible names. They're excited to be giving a masterclass. What's the pitch? How do you get people lined up to be giving this masterclass? They're notoriously private. They don't necessarily share these lessons for everyone. And they're in the midstream of their career. They're not necessarily at the end of their career. They're talking about things as they're going. Yeah. How are they sharing it with you? What's the pitch? Pitch has changed because I didn't know what it was going to be in the beginning. I didn't come from this world at all. So it was cold calling and I heard no from everybody. And those same people that said no now are like, I told you this was going to be a huge success. You're like, that's not how I remember that. <laughs> but I think what we tapped into that I think that worked was all these people had somebody in their life that really impacted them. They had a teacher. So maybe it was from school, but it could have been a parent, a colleague, a boss, a mentor, whatever. And they all want to give back. These people get paid, but they have opportunities to earn more doing anything else. So it's not about how much money they make. It's about 
I want a chance to actually teach and give back. And I want to do it at scale because they always have an option to go to a local school on Thursdays and reach 12 people. I can reach hundreds of thousands of people, a millions of people in my classes. So that's one. going to is we approach it as a partnership. When we work with any of these instructors, it is their class. We are trying to help and tell them what things people want to learn and try to shape it, but it's ultimately theirs. And they come with, here's the things I wish a person had actually taught me. Which one was the hardest get so far? Chris Voss was hard on the negotiation side. I don't know that <laughs> Which was the hardest one? I think one of the ones I love is just the Bob Iger class. I have an MBA. The Bob Iger class is phenomenal. When he walks through his deal strategy with Pixar and Steve Jobs, I mean, holy smokes, that was years in the making. In the Sarah Blakely class, she bootstrapped that from nothing. Just grit and hustle and in the stores to move product around so people would see it, to train staff, to sell it. I think in the Sarah Blakely class, one of the things that stands out is the end of the class and we asked her to kind of wrap up the class. So she's like, you know, thanks everybody for taking my class. I did all these things. And so if I can do it, you can do it. And then she just starts to get very emotional. And we keep rolling the camera and we're like, Sarah, can you explain what's going on? And she's basically like, holy shit, I did these things. And you realize that hadn't sunk in. You see these instructors in the class as they learn things and come to terms with things and you see it raw. That was inspiring. If Sarah Blakely still hasn't comprehended, understand, doesn't appreciate all the things that she's done, it's okay that I don't yet either. And that was so powerful, so powerful. I think that that's happening a lot these days because everyone's so fast moving and particularly coming out of this crisis and this pandemic, get it, ambition, we need to keep up with everything in the schedule. And then if you find people that can slow down a little bit, and you have a colleague, Matt Rutler, who does this with Mila, asks me very interesting questions. It's usually like late at night and I take the time and People that come visit around now that needs a moment to talk about the journey, there's been a lot of loneliness out of this pandemic also. And when you get a moment to talk about your journey, people get quite emotional about it. And even building a company without a pandemic is a lonely exercise and increasingly lonely the further you go. When you get to talk about it and take stock, I think it does tap into an equal amount of satisfaction and emoting but also a sense of how much solitude there was along the way as well. 100%. And I think that comes out a lot. Yeah. Have you given any thought to why you think people are sharing it more or they are more aware of it now? Yeah, because then I think people have lived in isolation for a while. And coming out of it, there's been such a longing for human connectivity. But then they skipped over the step of sharing, mm. let me tell you mm. what I've been up to, because it's been so much... Let's get on with the life and let's get on with the recapturing of the opportunity in front of us. But we forgot to double back on saying, hey, by the way, let me tell you what I've been up to. And let me tell you how difficult this was. It usually happens at midnight or 1230 if you can <laughs> stay up. If you can stay up, there's storytelling time. And I find myself sleeping less because I have to tell you, like, sleep's important, but sleep's a function of the alternative. And if you can stay up and tell good stories, that's the only time you could just actually slow down for a minute. That's really worth it to recount a little bit. 
Yeah, I think that's so fascinating. I think the other element I was thinking about is that we used to distract ourselves with activities we did during the day, going out for drinks or going to an event or conference. You don't have as those as much those distractions. So you have to deal with what's inside of you more, I think. Yeah. 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 Well, talking about that, you have announced a, a new course called the White House. Mm-hmm. Politicians are not visibly emotional, although maybe they cause emotion. Wait until our classes come out. Yeah. So it's going to launch this week with a class by Hillary Rodham Clinton. You've also announced courses from Presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, as well as Madeleine Albright and Condoleezza Rice. Tell us how this all came together and what you're most excited about with this new initiative. Yeah. We wanted to aim big and said, okay, if we are to be true to our mission, making it possible for anybody to learn from the best and people who can or otherwise wouldn't have access to it, who is a group of people that you never really have access to the inner thinking of? And this is ironic or might sound weird, but the people that we vote to lead our country and have the top offices and posts in the country, we don't usually get in a deep, intimate way of what they've learned and a chance to hear how they address things that impacted us. So we thought, how neat and almost absurd would the idea be if the presidents of the United States taught classes that anybody could take? Because that's usually things that only the advisors are really close to them can hear or know about. And then you start thinking, I think this is what Bill Clinton then said you know, as part of his class. He really hopes that the future world leaders are going to take his class. And the idea that the next president of the United States is going to probably take a master class, because if you're going to run for office, you're crazy to not at least want to learn from the people who are in this job beforehand. Even if you agree or not agree, you're going to want to learn from them. So it kind of started with a really bold idea. And we went and approached them and they said yes. And they devoted tons of their time and effort and shared things that they've never shared before. Talking about the elections and campaigns, and they are some of the best classes that we've ever had. Yeah. Even if you don't agree with them, because we know half the country did not vote for George Bush or any of the Clintons, but you have something to learn from them. So the White House series that has come out kicked off with just the most impactful surprising, emotional masterclass for those that have not signed up. You need to sign up. You need to see this because it's with the Clintons and particularly Hillary Rodham Clinton, who has been seen in a way that most people have not seen her before. Tell us about that interview and how surprising that was. And for those of you that have not seen the clip, you have to go watch it. But David, tell us how she did there and how surprising that was for you. So the class is on grit and resilience. And one of the things she does in the class for the first time ever, she reads the speech that she had written that she would give if she had won the election against Trump. She read it on camera and the story in the speech is if she can go back in time and talk to anybody, it would be her mom. And her mom was abused as a child. And she would go back in time and tell her mom that the difficulties you're going to have in life are going to be worth it because your daughter is going to be the first female president of the United States. And that's the American dream. And she just started crying. She just started crying. And she walked off. She walked off the set. She walked off the set to take a breath and she came back. But 
it's a level of vulnerability and openness that is so powerful, so powerful. Not just the first female president, the most powerful person in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a way to kick off a new series. <laughs> yeah. And it forces the lessons that she tries to then take from it and saying, hey, you are going to go through life with things that are horrible. And what is it that you want to achieve? And how do you stay strong through it? How do you deal with everybody that's going to hate you, that's not going to agree with you? And for her, it really starts with what is it that you want to achieve in life? And the more you can lock that in, the easier you can push everything else aside. Yeah, and that's not politics, just the ultimate relatability. Yeah, I think that's life. I think that's a part of entrepreneurship. I think that's part of being an executive. It's figuring out, if you picture yourself on your deathbed, what is it you will have to have done or lived through or achieved in life to not have any regrets? And I think that's something that we as a species have to constantly evaluate for ourselves over and over again to actually change that and update and adapt it. Yeah, and I think a lot of what Masterclass is trying to accomplish is trying to link generations of leadership from leaders of the generation of today to teaching and educating the generation of leaders to come, which is, I think, the platform that you have, that I have, that we're trying to really hold that responsibility because coming out of this pandemic, you really see the new people in learning that have skipped a couple of years in physical spaces, trying to find out where those gaps reside and the system hasn't changed or adapted to it yet. Yeah. And so that's where your platform can solve those gaps and then basically allow for educating through it. I think a lot of the markets are going to have to adjust to that. That's where NFTs fit in. That's where asset classes fit in. We all have to solve for these gaps. Shareholder dynamics are going to have to play into these chasms. Where is the ultimate value creation? Values, value creation, purpose in the next generation, in this coming generation coming out of school. What are the vocations? How do you educate yourself through the vocation? Not in a traditional way, but in a new educational format, direct to consumer, education technology, et cetera. Yeah. And it fundamentally changes how education should look and feel like, including who are our teachers. So for most of you, think of it, a teacher was somebody who wasn't a practitioner. One of our core hypothesis beliefs with Masterclass is there is something to learn from somebody who has done that job before and is at the top of their field for that. Right. Well, some statistics from your subscribers. 88% of people feel Masterclass made a positive impact on their life. 76% feel they learned something that changed their life. 84% feel that they learned something that totally changed the way they thought about something. I think these are the proofs of the pudding there. So let's talk about the model for a second, getting to the business. The revenue model is based on subscription. People have to opt in to the Masterclass platform. Starts at $15 per month and allows users to access all of your classes. What have you seen, particularly during the pandemic and coming out of it now, with your subscribers and their engagement levels across different classes and do you see engagement picking up? Do you think that it's going to stay strong? And then also, like a lot of people talk about the TED Talks, comparing it to Masterclass, how is it different? And how should people differentiate those two things? Yeah. All right. So on the first part, engagement side, it's fascinating. We found two interesting trends. Number one is the classes that spiked in the pandemic were not ones that we thought or expected. So 
There were some that spiked on how to lead in brand new times, but the ones we saw spike the most were just so unexpected. Chris Voss has a chapter on tactical empathy. That chapter spiked. And I couldn't really understand it. And then we did some user interviews and they're like, well, I have to negotiate with my husband or wife or kids for who's going to get to work in what room, who's going to be on the internet at the same time. And I want to do that with some love. So I need some help. So we actually saw spikes in those. So that was really fascinating. We also saw on the gardening side with Ron Finley, all that was really interesting. The other thing we found, most people, when they try to classify or describe somebody, they pick one thing. We are multi-hyphenate. I'm an entrepreneur who also likes to fly fish, who likes to read. Early on, especially when we talk to investors on a pitch, they're like, hey, nobody's going to be interested in a subscription offering. And you're like, no, I think they are. Like, no, no, people have a vertical and they're just going to stay deep in there. Now, that was a big risk for us. Because if you take the Steph Curry basketball class and the only other classes you'll take in basketball, this is going to be a bad business because I got to go deep in every field and vertical. What we found is people love breath. They have lots of interest. So I know this was true for a while. I have to go check if it's still true. If you took the Steph Curry class first, the next class you were most likely to take was the Steve Martin class. Interesting. I love that. So that shock and surprise to us, but the underlying hypothesis was not. And so how we've designed our classes and the business model is we know you're interested in lots of things. And so we're going to help you learn those. But also there's some things that you don't even know that you are interested in. But because I got you in from the Steph Curry, I'm going to show you this other class that's going to rock your world. Okay. So engagement levels are up and variable and different people want some variety. The revenue model is intact. That's a consistent offering. People can get the service anywhere. They write the anywhere. Anywhere. Yeah. Has a differentiate from a TED talk. It's very different. Even in our qualitative research and quant research, you go to TED if you want short inspiration or something like this. Ours is more involved. Ours is you want to learn something. And everything is designed for that. So a TED talk, if you look at it, it's a stage, somebody's talking with some slides and it's done in six to 12 minutes. Ours, Anna Wintour's class, we will go with her to her team meetings, seeing what those are like, how she acts. Christina Aguilera will bring people into her class. She will sing with them, give notes. You will hear her saying, it's a much more in-depth, immersive experience. Yeah. And then you're also launching Masterclass at Work, which allows employers to offer Masterclass subscriptions as an employee benefit. What's the background on how that started and how does it work as a tool? Yeah. It was far away on our roadmap. And then we started getting approached by companies, Square from Deloitte, saying that a bunch of their employees are already using the platform. Can we get a enterprise subscription? And we're like, we didn't have an enterprise subscription. But of course, as an entrepreneur, the answer is always, of course you can. (laughs) And then- We've worked on it for years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What is the amount that you want to pay for this? So it really started maybe a year and a half ago because of this inbound. And we then hired a really small team, just collect orders, take them. And it just started growing, just huge. So we now have put a whole team around it. And what we're finding is employees see our classes want to take it. And they now went to their bosses and their employers say, hey, this is how I want to learn. And I think the pitch to employers has been, these are classes that your employees are actually going to take. Tell me how the business has been funded in private rounds and now how the business is situated financially. Yeah, so we have raised approximately half a billion dollars on the private 
market side, both from mostly institutional investors, but also some strategics. We still have most of it. And I think there's an opportunity for us to own the lifelong learning space. And I want us to be the best product and the best brand in that space. I spent time in venture capital and I saw what dysfunctional boards look like. And I vowed if I ever started a company, I would have a very high functioning board. We spent a lot of time to make sure the folks we have around us are world-class. I love talking to people that know more than I do. So on the advisory side, try to put some great folks around us that can help me grow and us grow. Yeah. And is the positioning of the company in your mind a uh, learning platform, education platform, given you own the IP, is it a media platform, a tech platform? Is reach important to you as a result of the purpose that you have? What is the ultimate dream and vision for Masterclass? I think we sit at the intersection of entertainment and education. I always resist, which one are you? And I'm like, why can't you be both? Sorry, like, why can't education also be entertaining? I think those lines are going to blur from you're a studio, you're a tech company, you're a We own it from end to end. That has huge advantages. I know who our customer is. I know who I'm making the class for. I know what things they like and dislike. I can tell when a joke in our class lands or does the land and what happens to our engagement rate based on that. Understanding that allows us to build a better product. I think those lines have already started to blur. When we launched six years ago, people said you have to either produce the content or you have to distribute it. And you're like, well, we are going to do both. I want to talk a bit more about the giving back and the social change. I love the first look event that you talked about where you announced these great initiatives about giving back, focusing on social impact, specifically designed to amplify voices, which is a clear mission powering social change, especially expanding the voices of the underserved communities. Talk a bit about that because there are different communities that obviously many are underserved. Maybe talk about a few of them. And I particularly want to talk about the Lewis Hamilton Master Community Ambassador. Yeah. If our mission is to make it possible for everybody to learn from the best, you have to accept that there's people that can't afford it. And so how do you get to them? So for next year, what we will do is we'll give access to 1 million people who otherwise would not have access to Masterclass. That's across the globe. One of the instructors heard about this and really wanted to get involved and help. It's Lewis Hamilton. For those who are really going to focus on certain groups, he's going to be our first ambassador in that dimension. Some of the groups that we target and work with are everywhere from folks that are in jail, providing them an opportunity to take classes and learn and to equip them with skills once they get out, to our school children that otherwise could not afford it, and to groups that are constrained because of where they live or income or age and trying to address it. That's great. So I call this last section like quick hits. So can I ask you a few questions? Is there anyone that you've had trouble getting that you would love to still get? I asked John Malone in the podcast we did with him who he would want to meet that he hasn't met yet, by the way. And he's 80 years old. And he said Elon Musk, actually. So this form could actually create opportunities. still. So don't be bashful because this is like a big question. I am never special. Okay, great. Well, first of all, John would be awesome and great. Musk would also be awesome and great. Warren Buffett, Obama's, Michelle and Barack, Oprah Winfrey would love a class from her. On brand for Masterclass seems like a no-brainer. 
I agree. And then I wish this had existed beforehand, because imagine if you can go back in time and take a class from the Wright brothers, even though 80% is wrong. How do they come up with the idea to take a bike and a kite and go off a hill? And I mean, think about if we could learn from those people and build upon that. So I want to capture the people who will be the Wright brothers in 100 years today. Yeah. Napoleon famously said, History is a set of lies that everyone has agreed upon. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if you could take uh, someone from a historical figure and bring him back out of MasterClass tell us the truth of what actually happened. I thought doing a deep fake class from Shakespeare and you just do a bunch of AI on everything he's ever written and I would take a class from Shakespeare. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. So who in your life have you learned from the most and why? One of the best teachers I ever had was a professor named John Nye. He is an economic historian. And the assignment he gave us was take a business article in any publication, assume all the facts are right, but do your own analysis. And so I took one. I don't want to say the company. It was all about one big tech company is the best run company in tech. And so I read the article and you start to read the article and you realize with all the things he's teaching in class on incentives and org structure, this firm is a disaster. And so I wrote an article that this firm is doomed. I wish I had more faith in myself and decided to short the stock. I did not. The company went down incredibly fast. In the next year, the same news magazine ran an article saying this is the worst run company in tech and did not mention the first article at all. And the part where the, I learned so much about it, this idea that I should do my own thinking about things, I can put a structure and framework that I've learned and apply to things I see in my everyday life. And that it's maybe the anti-authority thing, but there is a distinction between facts and then where the insight is. And it's yeah. really important that you get great at both. You have to figure out in your organization, your team, how to get information that is really good. And if you build a team that just says yes to you or shares the stuff you want to hear, it is a disaster. And you have to figure out the org structure that your team's going to feel safe to bring you stuff that you don't want to hear. And then you got to also, it's not usually the same people who are really sharp at analyzing all that information and then to run them. Sorry, that was a long answer to your question. Okay, tell me the person that you learned a tremendous amount from. In a lot of ways, I have taken and been influenced a bit of the greatest hits I've taken from different entrepreneurs and elements of each person. Like I always find like there's something very redeeming about each person that's come before me and after me and in this ecosystem today. And I ask questions, I pick up pieces, and I'm kind of the birthing of all of that. Obviously, not defined by others, but with a very strong core. Are you open to sharing stuff? Yeah. Like, well, first, I'm obviously very strongly influenced by my parents. They're first-generation Americans. Like your grandparents, my father's mother escaped the Holocaust from Austria, and my father's father's from Poland. Strong influences in my life. And my mother's father was from Benghazi, Libya, and Jewish, and came to this country. Most family went to Italy, it was an Italian colony, but came to this country. And I remember him being very not relatable to most, but I found it to be, how do you pierce through and build a relationship there of scholarly 
conversation. I was very influenced by my parents' ups and downs with all that, those things growing up. And that's built who I am as the strong core of who I am that allowed me to then feel comfortable being as outwardly social and curious as I am, because otherwise I would be more introverted. I would say like more than anything, it was being in front of the public markets that got me the truth because that's the most humbling exercise in the world. When you see two people arguing a point, you know one will eventually capitulate, but you will see that person lose the argument before they admit it themselves. That's the public markets. My job a lot of the time as an advisor is to help a CEO in a very subtle way, get to self-awareness before the public markets helps the CEO get there ahead of time. Because if the shareholder base gets there before the CEO, it's activism. But if the CEO gets there with an advisor, it can make all the difference in the world. And then you're on your front foot dictating front foot strategies. And that really comes from being experienced in the public domain and understanding how all that advice all that strategy relate back into shareholder value, which is at the end of the day, the landing point it has to work. Yeah. Ultimately, that all comes from that experience together. What really matters in the day is what I learned from my kids, because when you come home and it's not authentic or truthful, they look at you in the eye and within a second, they know and you know, you just feel comfortable or uncomfortable. And if you're not settled at that point in time, it doesn't work. So that's like the arc of life. You got to leave space at the end of the day, at the end of the life cycle to make sure that it's landing there too. And I think that's the ultimate arbiter. I'm very cognizant of the beginning, the middle, and the end because mm-hmm. I've seen it happen for other entrepreneurs mm-hmm. in how they've landed well and not landed well. And I leave space and time for those things. I was a camp counselor when I was a teenager. I think I learned more how to lead that than I did a lot of other training programs. Because to get a group of eight-year-old kids to do what you want, you got to learn how to motivate and inspire and to push them. I remember one of my first jobs, I was working for Tesco, the British chain, and I spent a lot of time in stores. And you realize by watching how a customer interacts with a product, you can tell pretty quickly if that product's going to sell or not. And it was all these things that end up impacting you for the rest of your life. Now we will put everything in front of a customer. We know before we launch a class, if people are going to like the class, how well we think it's going to sell, all by the lessons probably learned from Tesco. Yeah, I think that life ultimately gets to be about your personal development on top of yourself. Yeah. is the hardest journey in the world. And there are a lot of limitations around that. I always say to people, I have my peeps. I know where to go for different places to correct on the outside. And some of it is definitely not in the business world. There's faith, friendships, and then there's business. But a lot of the business and the friendships are integrated. But we help each other self-correct all the time. Mm-hmm. And you have to just choose the people around you that are purely motivated to do it for each other's benefit. That's the secret. Getting that inner circle over time that you look out for each other for the right reasons. And we have a pact that if you get in a line, get us back in line. Wait, wait, sorry. I want to ask about this. So this is a group of people that you all agree you're going to have each other's back or you're going to tell each other the truth if they got a line? Yes. Expand on that. It's, some of them are an agreed pact. They say early on, hey, it's okay. Tell me. Yeah, And please make sure of it. And that's come home to roost many times as examples. 
in different ways back and forth. Other times you just know that you can, you have to. That's like the inner circle. And that's a narrow, narrow group. You start your first year in college and you have a thousand friends and you end up with four. That becomes life as you go up and sideways or down or whatever it is. You just try to make sure you know where the foundation is. And those are the people you're going to find there. Yeah. All right. So I have one last question for you, Arya. Okay. You have always been really good at collecting a group of people that you can always ask for advice on, for thoughts on. There is an art and skill to that. What are your biggest tips that you would give to other people about how to do that? Well, first of all, I often quote the uh, behavioral economist, Donnie Kahneman, who says the best advisor is someone who has your best interest in mind, but doesn't care about your feelings. Although I always try to one-up that and say, ideally, you could do that while also creating a sense of warmth and intimacy around that as well. I think you could have it all. But that really means is you have to find someone who creates a motion of thought. So I think the ideal advisor relationship is someone that has a direction in mind. And then the advisor helps you accelerate that thinking towards a goal and unlocking towards an optimal outcome and not settling until it gets to the optimal situation. So I think it really takes an entrepreneur to really advise an entrepreneur ultimately because it's kind of the golden rule. So effectively, I think that there are puzzle pieces to be unlocked. Like if I introduce you to somebody else, company to company or person to person, you always have to walk out of that conversation saying, how did they know that I was missing exactly that element in myself or that company and that other person exactly filled it and that doesn't just leave it at a moment in time, but uncap something that can grow. And so I always say the transactional will take care of the financial outcome of today, but the multiple is not for the here and now. The multiple will shift based on what is done with that platform over time. Hmm. And that will be unlocked and uncapped hmm. for the markets to see. And I think that really is what you have to see beyond the deal, beyond the transaction. So I think it has to work over a long period of time. So the best advisors, I think, will be able to see through what an asset looks like or a person will look like beyond the fundamentals and beyond the person into uncapping an optimal situation. I'm sure there's also times where you have to, in a very short amount of time, influence somebody. Would you be open to sharing what you've learned to do that? Yeah. I mean, there was one transaction I was working on where um, you get to the end of a deal and you know it's the right transaction for an entrepreneur or for somebody that it's a great deal overall. But you see somebody, just human nature, nitpicking down the end. And uh, you have to kind of step in saying, okay, the negotiation phase is over. We know each other really well. I feel very comfortable saying this to you. I said to this one person a long time ago, I don't want you to walk across the finish line here. I want you to tap dance across the finish line here, which means I want you to stop asking for something. I want you to stop negotiating right now. I want you to really just dance across the finish line. Know that's a fantastic deal and skip over all these other little details that will be nothing in the scheme of things and know that you have a great transaction on your hands. Please get on with it. Don't lose it because this is a great deal. And I'm going to put myself on the side of the other person right now and know if you push them too hard, you're going to lose yourself. Mm. And you don't want to ever, ever risk that because at the end of the day, they will need to know that you appreciate it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to kind of see both sides and mm-hmm. have them experience that the right way. And so uh, sometimes you have to kind of advise someone from the other lens a little bit and give them a bigger, broader perspective if they haven't been through it before. And that I think is also helpful. By the way, no matter what age they are, in this particular case, this person was much older than me, but they want that coaching ultimately. But you have to do it carefully and gingerly at a certain moment in time, because even though I may not be older than some of these people, I have transacted with people that are older than some and younger than others. And so having that full paradigm of experiences, I think, really helps. Thanks for trying that. What about you? What do you look for in an advisor? For every stage I'm at in the business, I need two or three advisors that have already been at that stage and are a couple stages ahead. What I actually go to advisors for is not what should I do in this one case. That is rare because that, like you still need a lot of information of what's going on with that. But it's more about, I realized for me, is helping us see the entire board. So I try to pick two or three people that I know have a strong point of view. And this is where the provocative people who you all know, who it's fun to talk to, but it would be hard because they always have a strong point of view. Those are the ones I go to. And I usually try to pick somebody who I know is not going to think the same. So somebody who will be very safe on this, somebody who will be very aggressive on this. And it's actually to see what the board looks like. I was just player as a kid and I want to see the moves that I don't know about. It's almost like I couldn't see half the board and these people are going to share light on it. People will say, Make sure you say you don't know when you don't know. And I say, great, of course that's right. Learn as much as you can to be in the front lines to never have to say you don't know. So when you're on that front line and you're CEO to CEO, no matter what geography you're in, have enough experience to be able to advise correctly to not have to say you don't know and give them that perspective so you're able to help where you are at all times. Mm-hmm. And that's how the whole company should be structured, no matter where you are, no silos. That's the ultimate build. When you don't know something, hopefully you've learned how I can solve that problem or who is it I should go ask and would be able to know it. Because I think it's impossible to know everything, but you should be able to know how you could go solve that problem. And so that you don't have to stay in it, I don't know, for very long. Keep the bar high, keep the quality high, and keep educating the world. Yeah. Thanks, David. Yeah, thank you, Arne. That's fun. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to Kindred Cast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app.